This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, my watch says it's that time, so that's fun. We got we got a lot of um, ground to cover. Here, we to have prayer in just a moment. You should have got this as you came in, and what I am using is. Uh, is a teacher's guide that I put together. This is something I put together some years ago. It, you'll see that it says based on the New International Bible, but I'm going to revise it to go along with the New King James Version at some point here. We're going to put it up on the web, but I said I don't want you to put it up on the web until I get it, um, get it revised a little bit. It won't really matter what version you're using. Um, actually, the New International helps us a lot in, it actually will in some places, helps us in the book of Romans. But the New King James is great as, as well. So um, I probably will not cover every question in this. My goal is to do uh, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans because they're kind of a, a, in themselves. But I hope that we will make the kind of progress that I can get into Romans 9 and 10 and we'll talk about the Jewish connection, particularly as it relates to the mark of the beast and the end of time, I think you're going to find that very fascinating. There's some hint to that as you get into the first chapter of the book of Romans. So you have, uh, you have that. Feel free to fill it out. This is a seminar. It's not a preaching service. I am happy for you to raise your hand. Um, obviously, I will try to make some progress, so if I get too much, I'll try to narrow that down a little bit. But I'm happy for you. I want it to be clear for you. I think every Seventh-day Adventist should master the book of Romans. And my suggestion to you is take the book and read it and pray and read it and pray and read it. And you will find the most glorious, powerful affirmation of the Adventist message that I think you will possibly get. We We have everything in the world to be excited about the book of Romans. So I want to tell you that. I love the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. We would do Revelation seminars, uh, evangelistic meetings, Daniel Revelation. And then afterwards, I would put people into all the new converts. I would put them into a class on Romans, this class that you're getting here today. And we found that that really solidified people in their faith. Uh, In other words, uh, it really grounded them in the faith and answers a lot of questions, a lot of stuff that you hear moving around in the Adventist church today, outside the Adventist church. The book of Romans really clears it up um, as, we, as we go into it. So let's ask God's blessing and we'll begin our journey together. Gracious Father in heaven, we want our journey to end standing on the sea of glass. We want to be there with the Apostle Paul who gave so much for the gospel of Christ with the other apostles and all the contributed and the value that you've used through them to add to our life. Thank you most of all for Jesus. Romans would not have been written without you sending your only begotten son and letting him suffer at the hands of lawless men who treated him as they deserved themselves. But he allowed that so that we might be treated as he deserves. We thank you, Father, if that's given birth to the book of Romans and we praise your name. May we understand it clearly. May we not only understand it, but we go out of here able to explain it to other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
Without the book of Romans, there would have been no Martin Luther. Am I right? And without Martin Luther, there would probably have been no Protestant Reformation. Or at least that's the instrument that God used. And without the Protestant Reformation, there would have been no United States of America and all the freedoms that we have. And the Constitution of the United States of America is a Protestant document based on a reaction to the horribles of the Dark Ages. Don't ever forget that. And the book of Romans stands as one of the generators of the freedoms that you and I hold and appreciate right this very moment. I want to go to the note, the beginning on the introduction. I think you have it in yours. It's almost worth reading. I could uh, ad-lib it, but I think it's worth reading. I've got notes in here as you go along. The prophecies of both Daniel and Revelation predicted that the church at Rome, and the book is called Romans. So it's written to the Romans, and the church at Rome would have an enormous influence on the Christian world. Is that true? History for 2,000 years has demonstrated those predictions to be true. The gospel to the Romans has been carefully cherished down through the ages. The Christian church would have avoided many problems. The carnal nature, the desire for worldly greatness has always clawed at man's only hope, faith in God. We'll get to that text, that glorious text in the first chapter where it says, the just shall live by his faith. I'm going to talk about what that really, what that really means. But notice this, the ancient church of the patriarchs wrestled with their human tendencies to evil. Do you do the same? I do. I don't like it. I don't like my carnal nature. I don't like its tendency to selfishness. And I want it dead, dead in my life. We'll talk about that when we get to Romans chapter 6. The ancient church of the patriarchs wrestled with their human tendencies to evil and some decided to trust what instead of the Lord? And what was the result? Paganism. By the way, is paganism making a big comeback today? Huge. The ancient Jewish church wrestled with human nature and some decided to put their trust in the law and its rituals rather than the lawgiver. And legalism begins in that context. The Church of Rome wrestled with human nature, and some decided to trust the imperial greatness of the Roman Empire rather than their Jewish Messiah. And thus began the dreadful union of religions and secular power. Persecution resulted. Modern-day evangelicals and Protestants wrestled with human nature, and some chose to trust science, philosophy. Do you know there's Sunday churches that have Evolution Sunday? Choose to trust science and psychology and the wisdom of modern men. And thus we often see a diluted, directionless Christianity. Each of these departures from true religion proves to be a tower of straw with a foundation of sand. Today we're faced with the same decisions. We will, will we trust the Lord or will we trust ourselves? And it's the book of Romans that helps us to find completeness to the deepest longings of our human hearts. My life has been wonderfully transformed by this book. And so, chapter 1. I'm not going to cover, as I said, every text or because I won't... Uh, I mean, we can, I have six sessions altogether 
And if I'm going to get to Romans 9 and 10, and I think I want to do that, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to have to skip just a little bit. But you can pick some of that up and, and you'll, you'll see that. Let's go right down to um, the, first, the first part. Look at, look at um, verse 3 and 4. Because of the microphone, the recording, a lot of times I like to have people help me do the reading, but for the sake of that, I'm going to do the reading. Um, and if you'll follow along, then when you raise your hand, I'm going to try to get close enough so that I can pick up your comment in this mic because that's just going to get recorded and, and where it goes, I do not know, or at least repeat your question. All right, look at verse uh, 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with what? Jesus was not simply declared. It wasn't somebody that came up with some figment of their imagination and said that Jesus is the Son of God. It wasn't somebody that said, I just kind of like calling him the Son of God. No, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power. What kind of power? According to the spirit of holiness, and his, his linchpin is by the resurrection of the what? So Jesus being resurrected from the dead, that is the demonstration that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. So in just a few words, he, he, he moves uh, right through that. In your, in your text, if you look at number 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul declares Jesus to be both the Son of David and the Son of God. That's a unique combination. In other words, to be the Son of God and the Son of David what evidence does he offer? And that is the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 5, if you would. Through him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name's sake. Here's the question. Paul's objective is to bring all nations into the obedience of God's law. How does he intend to do this? Anybody want to answer that? By the way, have you ever heard people talk about obedience not being a good thing and you hear all that kind of thing and people just kind of war against being obedient to the law of God? I just had somebody write me, uh, I, I'll get down to that later, um, you know, telling me they, you know, they really like the Sabbath, but they were just free in Jesus. What, when people say I'm free in Jesus, what do they mean by that? What they mean by that is I can do what I want to do. Just do what I want to do anytime I want to do it because I'm free in Jesus and God help me. Grace is covering me. I'm telling you, that's a false gospel. Right at the very beginning of the chapter, the Apostle Paul says that his objective is to bring all nations into the obedience of the law of God. If that's the objective, then the law of God cannot be bad. With me? All right. So how do you do that? How do you get there? Well, the Jews didn't get it. They couldn't get it. They didn't get there. The only way that you can bring people into the obedience of faith is through faith in Christ Jesus. It is actually the gospel itself in Christ that makes it possible for the human being to be brought into obedience. And we're going to see why that's so important here as, as uh, we go, go along. All right, let's look at, um, let's look, I'm going to skip 8 through 15, if you don't mind, and I'm going to skip down to verse, to verse 16. 
Uh, one of the favorite texts, you can probably almost quote this one by heart, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is he not ashamed of it? Yeah, it's the solution. It's, 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 the, it's the only thing that can get us into the kingdom of heaven and transform us into Christ-likeness. I, what is Christ-likeness? Another word for Christ-likeness is holiness. People war against holiness. They don't like the word holiness. Holiness is not a popular word, even in many Adventist circles. It's not a popular word. But holiness is Christ-likeness. And the Apostle Paul says in another place, if you don't pursue holiness, if you don't pursue Christ-likeness, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. My paraphrase. All right, let's go. Verse 8. I'm sorry, not verse 8. Verse 16. He's called, the gospel is called the power of God for salvation. I want to say this, and I say this with sweet kindness. I'm not, I'm not, there's a place, I think, for some psychology. I'm not against psychology. But let me tell you, that's become the new God of this world, of the Western world. Today, people think it's psychology that can fix everything. The minute somebody gets into some kind of trouble, people say, yeah. And I'm telling you, as Christians, we need to understand that it's the gospel that has power to change the human heart. Because there's a supernatural element here that no psychiatrist has, no psychologist has. And I'm not trying to be unkind. You understand what I'm saying here. And there can be some place for some of that. I didn't say, but my point is, the real thing that really changes people is the power of the gospel. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'll stand up before kings and emperors. I'll stand up before all the PhDs. I'll stand up before all the psychiatrists and the psychologists. I'll stand up before the wise men of the world. I'll stand up before all the educated and all the universities. I'll stand up before them all. And I would say to all of them, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You may be ashamed of the gospel. You may war against the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because I will demonstrate to you over and over and over that it is the power of God. Unto salvation. And there's nothing greater than the power of God. And it's the power of God that's found in the gospel. And then he says, if you look at the uh, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. It is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by. Hey. What does that mean? Okay, let me ask you a question. Yes, I saw a hand right over. Speak up real loud for me. Okay, you should trust in God. Let me ask you a question. So That's good. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you do in your life any action that you do that's not the result of faith in someone or something. I'd like to suggest to you that it's faith that gives result to action. All right? You're sitting in this room, let me illustrate. You're sitting in this room right now and you, you look pretty calm and secure. Am I right? 
Anybody feel insecure in here this morning? No. You're calm and secure. But if this building begins to shake, how's that going to affect your behavior? I'll be right behind you. What happened? Your faith is shaken. But right now you have faith in the building, am I right? You have faith in your surroundings, everything's calm, peaceful, so I'm okay. But the minute that changes, your faith switches and you no longer have faith in the building, so you're going to get out of the building. All right? Okay, you think about that and how it affects your life. So the question for us as human beings is what do we put our faith in? What do we trust? So if you look at this text again, if you look at um, text 17, uh, the answer to that, by the way, is his actions and living are the result of trust. Um, And if you look at uh, number nine here, it says if a person refuses to put his trust in God, whom will he trust? If you don't go to put your trust in God, who are you going to trust? You're either going to trust yourself, am I right, or somebody else, one way or the other. This trust is a huge deal. It's big. All right, let me, let me uh, look at the note here. To live without trusting someone is impossible. It's under, under number nine. Is impossible. The question that faces you is, where will you put your trust? Will man put his trust in God? If he doesn't, he will also always trust himself. His actions will follow trust. Well, there's no such, uh, he said, so there's no such thing as as an atheist. An atheist is somebody that would trust himself. He's, yeah. Their God is himself. In other words, I'm in control of myself, and, and of course, you, you can always say, well, you know, did you get yourself here? Well, no, you know, you were at your birth, but you don't remember anything about it, do you? No, I don't. I, I, I've said this before, and I'm saying it with greater confidence all the time, and I, and I think there's another delusion around the corner, but this whole thing of evolution is on the skids, there was just an article in the Wall Street Journal. Anybody read that? I see Christine nodding her head. I don't know if you read that article or not in the Wall Street Journal just recently. Um, basically saying, uh, duh, maybe it's time uh, that uh, we admit that you cannot get intelligence from nothing Maybe it's time to admit that the DNA is staring us in our faces. Maybe it's time to admit that with all of our telescopes and listening devices and the Hubble and everything else, we find nothing else out there that could have planted life on Earth. Maybe. The secular modern world that's gone in its hedonistic journey, satisfying itself, I thought about this morning, lots of America wake up in a stupor this morning or a bad headache. 
Maybe it's time to recognize that God does exist. Have you ever heard these crazy people that get on there and they say, oh, you're a Christian. You, you believe in creation. Yes. Well, tell us, where did God come from? You need to be ready to answer that one. You look them right in the face and say, there never was a time when God was not. And there was never, will never be a time when God will not be. He's eternal. He came from nowhere because he's always been. And Paul, this is huge because this whole trust issue. Now Paul is getting ready to jump right into this subject. Listen as he not only indicts his world, but he indicts our world. Here he goes. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. How much ungodliness? And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now we just came off the issue of trust. And now he, he presents the wrath of God. I want you to know in much of liberal Protestant Christianity and in some centers of Adventism, they don't believe in the wrath of God. Now, let me use another term there that will maybe define it a little better. We're talking about the judicial wrath of God. And when I get over into chapter 3 and I talk about perpetuation, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But the truth is that God hates evil. I, one of my prayers is, God, help me to love what you love and hate what you hate. Now, God loves everybody, but he hates the sin. Am I right? But if you, if you keep going down the road, eventually, you'll become identified with the sin, and God can't, can't do anything else for you. But God's wrath is going to be revealed. His judicial anger is going to be revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, I, want to, I want to go to the, the text. Look at number 10 in your, in your sheet there. Why do you think God is so angry against ungodly people who suppress the truth? And why is trust so dependent on truth? Why do you think God is angry at people who suppress the truth? What, what does it mean to suppress the truth? It means you know the truth, but you don't tell the truth, or you, or you make people think that it doesn't exist. So what do you think the answer to that is? Well, I think God is angry against ungodly people who suppress the truth because he is the truth. He is the truth. Okay, let me ask, let me, let me get, ask another question. How many of you have relation, human relationships? Let me see your hand. You have a wife, husband, children, friends? How many of those relationships, those relationships can be based on lies? Do you, do you have a, a relationship with somebody and you say, well, you know, we're the best of friends. We lie to each other all the time. There's no such thing as having a relationship built on lies. The only way a relationship can be built is built on Truth. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. You can't separate it. So if you separate Jesus from the truth, you separate him from his doctrines, what do you do? Why would you do that? Why would you go down that road? There must be a reason. But much of the world does that today. Everybody wants, don't, please don't misunderstand me. Everybody wants Jesus today. And there was never a day and age when people didn't need Jesus. But I want the real Jesus. Jesus said there would be false Christ in the end of time. Was he right? False Christ can come about not only by some guy that dresses up in a white robe and gets on the internet and says, I'm Jesus. Those are not the ones that scare me too much. The false Jesus that I'm concerned about are the false Jesus that are created by religious leaders in the minds of people where people are following a Jesus that's not rooted and grounded in the New Testament and Scripture. And that's why it's so dangerous to separate Jesus from his doctrine. When you get up and say, well, you know, we have to balance the doctrines against Jesus. There's something terrible going on here. It's something terrible. And Jesus reacts to that, warns us by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He never allows himself to be separated from his teachings. God is very angry when the truth is suppressed because when truth is suppressed, people's relationship with himself is destroyed. Well, wouldn't you be angry? Hey, if somebody came along, if you had, uh, there's some of you here who have kids. How would you like it if somebody came and started telling your kids a bunch of lies about you so they could destroy the relationship between you and your children? Would you be angry about that? Well, think about how God is angry too. God's very angry with people who tell lies to his children so they disrupts the relationship. All atheists today are based, uh, they have no relationship with God because it's based on lies that they've been told in their classrooms about evolution and all this stuff when it's staring them, when the creator's power is staring them in the face. The truth, as Jesus said, the truth as it is in Jesus will make you free. Um, so the answer to that is A to 10. When the truth about God is suppressed, people will not trust him. And B, no relationship can exist on lies. Let's look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... How many of you have seen God? No hands here this morning. You, you haven't actually seen him. I haven't either. Not in physical form. By and large, God is invisible. Is that true? You serve an invisible God by and large. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes or characteristics, they supply that word, are clearly seen. Whoa. Is that an oxymoron? God's invisible is clearly seen. 
How? Since the creation of the world has invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their own thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became as fools. Uh, I, one of the uh, great, the father of, the father of evolutionists and atheist. He's an English person, and um, I think his name is Dawkins, if I'm not mistaken. I'll do respect. Dawkins? Dawkins. I'll do respect. Everybody should be respected. But one of his things is this. Now, get a load of this. It is true, he says in so many words, that the universe appears to be designed. And appears to have a designer. Duh. What you see is evidence of a designer. Throw my watch into a washing machine and shake it for 10 million years and you'll still never get a watch. And this is the part that I was just reading that just for life to exist on earth, there are at least 200 standards, 200 standards or qualifications that have to be met. They are are so exact that the possibilities of all of those coming together with all that exactness is an absolute impossibility. And that's the other thing is shaking them up. They're saying there's got to be something's going on here that's bigger. And they're beginning to run face the face with her own thing. And so they, they end up make, making, um, making fools out of themselves. Um, you can read the note there for yourself, and I'm going to take time to read that uh, right now. But let me look at, um, look at verse 21, uh, number 12. Why did the wise of this world become fools? That's an important question. How is it that we could become fools? How could you be smart and have the PH, uh, not PhD, have the IQ of, of Lucifer? Was Lucifer smart? People tell me sometimes, well, they're so smart, you know, they can't be wrong. I say, oh, really? What, what is it that led wise people to become fools? Verse 21. Anybody have the answer? Okay, look at the text. They did not what? They did not glorify God. They didn't give him thanks. If you want, if you want to end up with a heart that just begins to trust yourself, don't give thanks to God for what he's done. We ought to get up and say, Lord, it was you that created that son. Thank you so much for doing so. It's you that created that beautiful moon that I see. Thank you so much. It was you that gave me breath, created my lungs, gave me a voice, gave me a brain. Thank you, Lord. We don't thank God enough. 
And you're going to hear that resounding in chapter 4 once again we get there. But at the root of growing your faith, at the root of becoming a faithful person, is giving glory to God. And because they refused to give glory to God, they began to think that they could figure up everything and they became fools. All right, let's, um, let's go on watching our time here. Well, maybe I'll refer to this. I referred to it just a little little bit earlier. But let me look at the note under number 14 in your questionnaire. Since they refuse to trust God, where do they turn to find an explanation for the universe around them? Note, man needs to trust or worship something. I think it was you that said that a little earlier. As someone said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. If man refuses to trust and worship the author of nature, he will have no choice but to turn to where? Nature itself. Ancient paganism is nature worship. Many have looked at our evolutionistic models today and said we're just really going back to ancient nature worship. I mean, I get get a big kick. No, I shouldn't be a kick. I'll roll my eyes. Do you ever go on these, uh, you know, where these naturalists give you these tours you're going through, blah, 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 blah. And they say, you know, this animal developed this because of... That animal didn't develop anything. <laughs> that, that animal, uh, it, all, every, all the information was already put in uh, for any kind of adaptation that we may have in, in uh, the small sense. Both, both religious systems... Uh, Both religious systems endeavor to discover the source of nature from nature itself. That's what's going on today. They hope to discover something worthy of their trust. Tragically, both rejected God as nature's creator, the only one worthy of trust. Uh, Let's go back. This is pretty profound stuff that we've got right here that Paul is giving us. Okay, looking again at verse uh, 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their own thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became as fools. Verse 23, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Have you ever looked at all the gods of Hinduism? All due respect to my Hindu friends. What what do they look like? If if you go to uh, if you go to uh, some parts of Africa, or you go to other parts of Asia, and you look at these gods that people worship, what do they look like? You 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 look at you look at the ancient Greeks and all of their gods. What were they like? What, what, there, is a, there is a principle, and you know it well, and why God hates idol worship. Because by beholding, the human being was created to be on an upward trajectory. Isn't that wonderful? Let me tell you why the just shall always live by his faith. Some people think I get to heaven, I won't need faith. I want to tell you, you'll always need faith. You will never, ever 
close the gap between you and your Creator, there will always be in, in the new earth for the ceaseless ages of eternity, there will always be things about God and what He does that you cannot explain, that you will have to take it by faith because you trust two things about God. You trust His wisdom and you trust His love. The just shall live by His faith. Now and for eternity. It's faith in God who created him. So if, if we start bowing down to wood and stones, or we even bow down, you know, the gods of Hollywood nowadays, maybe people are secularists and they don't believe in anything, but they follow all the gods of Hollywood, it, it always will bring you down. It will never take you up. That's why looking at too much news is not so good. Somebody should have said amen. It's interesting. but All right. Look at verse 24. And let's... Um, that's verse 24 and 25. I'm looking at 15... This is a very interesting point, and you see it all around you today. It's like right off of your internet. Here we go. Therefore, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them to uncleanness and in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their body. I want to stop right here and ask a question. What is lust? All right, lust can be about a lot of things. I was in a tire shop getting my tires fixed, and I looked around for something to do, and they had a magazine laying over there. It was about on automobiles. And so I picked it up, and I said, well, I'm going to go over and read the editorial because that tells you kind of what people are thinking. And so in the editorial, it says, in this magazine... We lust for automobiles. Oh, what does that mean? I got to thinking about that. So let me ask a question. Are automobiles bad? How many used an automobile in some form or another to get here? Let me, okay, good. In fact, I like my automobile. As a matter of fact, I live in Michigan, and in the wintertime, my automobile has heat on it, and I'm very thankful for it. If you live in Arizona right now, You'd be thankful for it, too, because it's 34 degrees out there when I looked at my temperature this morning, if I had it right. But anyway, so we, 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 I, I, there's nothing wrong with automobiles. It's nice, basic transportation. So, for, so how, what, what is lusting for automobiles? What happens with that? Well, what it does is it takes a good thing and turns it into something, perverts it into something that's not so good. Does that make sense? So if I'm just really dead set on this automobile and I have to have an automobile that goes 700 miles an hour and I get out and have a crash and kill somebody, it's not so good, is it? In other words, it takes something good and perverts it into something that's not so good. So in other words, 
all the gifts that God has given us from appetite, whatever it is, our sexual natures, those are good things. They're not bad things. Is it wrong to be hungry? Is hunger a good thing? Did God make hunger? So when you get hungry, if you didn't get hunger, you wouldn't eat and you'd starve to death. Am I right? How about the taste buds so that things taste good? Is that a good thing? Aren't you glad for that? How many of you want to eat food that tastes terrible or bland or whatever? So those are good things. They're not bad things. But what happens if we take hunger and twist it into something that's perverted? What if I say I've got to eat all the time? I've got to, I've got to taste everything. I, I just can't. Then you've got perversion. Am I right? So you've taken something good and perverted it into something that's not so good or that's bad. All right. That's listening to the Apostle Paul here. Um, Verse 24, so therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And if you look at uh, number 15 and number 16 in your guide there, what does the glorification of nature lead to? Or why does the glorification of nature lead to the glorification of immorality? Anybody brave enough to answer that? All right. You take a shot at it. Speak up nice and loud so it gets right in my microphone. All right. All right. All right. What 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 is how does this worship of of the creation lead to the glorification of immorality? If you're trying to discover the source of nature from nature itself, where are you going to look? You're going to look at your reproduction organs. Am I right? That's why every pagan religion degenerates into immorality. If you want to look at ancient history, they had the prostitutes, both male and female, in their temples, and they inculcated in worship immorality. And if you go to Phoenicia, you go to North Africa, it became so horrible, and this is why God wiped out those people, is you got tens of thousands of urns, jars of little babies that were sacrificed on their altars. And we're not much better in this civilization. We're sacrificing tens of millions of unborn children on the altars of our lust in this nation and in the Western world. We need to start waking up, folk. Our world is really not different. Maybe some of the methods are different. Ancient paganism, you look at the note, ancient paganism was fascinated with fertility. Why? Because they're trying to discover nature from nature. 
Many of the rituals of paganism included immorality as an act of worship. Pagan worshipers glorified reproduction itself as a source of life rather than the author of reproduction, the modern-day, quote, playboy, end quote. Philosophy derives its concepts from evolution. Evolution glorifies man as being in charge of his own destiny and discounts God's government. Look at number 16, verse 25. Why would man rather trust a lie that there is no God than to trust the truth that there is a God? Exactly right. They don't want to be accountable to anybody. But the truth is, and the truth of the everlasting gospel is, that the wrath of God will be revealed against all ungodliness, i.e. we are accountable to the God who made us. And we are accountable for how we use the gifts he gave us, whether it's hunger, whether it's our sexual natures, whether it's uh, whatever it might be. Whatever gifts God gave us, we are responsible and will be accountable to him as to how we use it. We may not like it. And the world today doesn't want that. They don't want to be accountable to God. Hollywood, if we want to be, I'll tell you, Hollywood, I use that kind of in a, in a big sense, the media, whatever you want to call it, the entertainment industry. I mean, we, we are just presented today on every hand. You have to close your eyes to the billboards. Vulgarity and vileness are everywhere. Living a really, okay, let's go on here. Looking at verse 26, for this reason, the reason I just gave, they don't want accountability, they don't want to worship God, so therefore, since they put him out of the picture, they start looking at themselves, trying to find where they came from, and then they start focusing on the reproductive nature. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. What? What kind of passions? Now, he calls them that. It's not going to be politically correct. Paul, well, they would go after Paul today. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. I think one of the greatest signs that Jesus is coming is the vileness of people's sexual behavior. Now, let me say it clearly, just so, and, and just let the world listen if they want to. Homosexuality, lesbianism is sin, and it's vile, and it's ugly, and it's awful. And if a person continues notice my words, continues to practice it without repentance and change, they're going to be lost. And that message needs to get on our campuses because today we're so bent on being nice and we should be nice to everybody. Am I right? We should be kind to everybody and respectful no matter if they're an atheist or homosexual or wherever they come from but we should not ever be afraid to call sin by its right name. The Achilles heel of this thing is, within Adventist circles, is that we want to be so nice that we're getting to the place that we just accommodate it and people think it's okay. It's not okay. 
any kind of sexual abuse or misuse of our sexual natures, whether it's heterosexual or otherwise, is sin. It's wrong. And it must be repented of. Or God's judicial anger is going to be revealed. All right, in the back. Speak up nice and loud because I can't get back to you with my... It's a tension that we walk. And here's the tension that we walk. The tension is to love people. I don't care if they have a homosexual, lesbian background. I don't care what kind of background they have. It doesn't matter to me because we're in the business of saving sinners, of which I am one. My background may not have been that background, but it may be something else. Because every human being will get into that. It's born with this need for a Savior. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. I must have a Savior. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So as there's this tension of, of our great love to save and to, to reach out, and at the same time, not to lower one iota the high standard of God's law. So you call sin by its right name, and then you offer the gospel of grace in order to get them back into harmony through repentance to the beautiful, wonderful law of God that's the law of life. I'll talk more about that when I get to Romans chapter 7. And my time says that I have to give you a 10-minute break, and I'm going to do that right now, and then we will continue. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.